Uh, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9, we'll look at the, uh, the closing passage of Genesis 9, beginning in verse 18, Genesis 9, as we continue our series uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word to get together, that is our practice here at Grace Covenant, most of you are used to that by now. You've done it once already uh, this morning. Genesis 9, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Now we pray, O Holy Spirit, as the one who has inspired these words, who has preserved them for us, that you would now be at work in them, through them, in our own hearts. Conform us to the image of Christ, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, You all know um, that trials come and go in your life. Uh, They they come, they're there for a season, and then they're gone. Uh, There are those who have uh, perhaps physical trials of some form or another that seem more long-lasting, that seem more permanent, even perhaps a little like Paul whose thorn in his flesh wouldn't be taken away from him. But... Generally, we understand, we know, we endure trials, and they, they come and they go. And how often do we think to ourselves, man, if I can survive that, I can survive anything. If I could get through that trial, then I can get through anything in the world. That surely is the most difficult trial I've ever had to face, and surely if I can survive that, then I can survive anything. There's one problem with that thought. It's not true. Noah has led God's people, every human being on the earth that would survive the flood, All eight of them, Noah, Mrs. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. He built an ark and spent 
we aren't told exactly, decades building this boat. Because there's a promise of a flood because of the extent of man's wickedness on the earth. God says, I'm going to destroy the earth. I'm going to destroy mankind. I'm going to, I'm going to start over again. I'm going to destroy it all because every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. Noah has led his family. The flood's now gone. They're out of the ark. All the animals have gotten off the ark. And in fact, actually at this point, the world is beginning to be repopulated. Noah, a mere man, has delivered the world through this flood. Probably one of the most difficult trials a mere man would ever face. Imagine, I mean, just just think for a second how difficult it is. Come on, you should cheat on this test. I've got the answer key, you want to see it? No, I don't want to see it, that wouldn't be right. Come on, come on, are you really going to be like that? Are you going to be... That little bit of ridicule is more than most of us can handle. Decades of boat building in light of some promised flood somewhere off in the future. Imagine the the ridicule that that Noah would have faced in building the ark. He, He delivers his wife, his kids, their wives, and for that matter we're told actually in verse 19 that technically Noah delivered every human being that would, that would live after him. You and I are products of Noah building an ark. You and I have benefited. We exist because Noah built this ark. And as it turns out, Noah's difficulty, Noah's struggle, Noah, in a sense, becomes a, a savior of the world, a deliverer of all mankind through this flood, and surely if he can endure that, he can endure anything. The problem is that Noah might be able to endure that trial, but it seems in this passage he can't endure no trial at all. That's where he is at this point. I mean, the floodwaters are gone, everyone's out of the ark, the animals are out of the ark, the world is being repopulated. In fact, by this time, Noah has become a farmer, he's planted a vineyard, and the vineyard has been around long enough to produce grapes that he could actually make wine with. Oh, and actually by this time, his youngest son, Ham, is the father of Canaan, which is his youngest son of four. So at this point in our passage, they're off the boat and have been for quite some time long enough for him to have had four children at least. And for Noah to plant this vineyard and grow grapes that could actually produce wine. Okay, yes, this passage comes right on the heels of God's covenant with Noah. 
Yes, it seems to come right on the heels of getting off the boat, offering a sacrifice to God. God promises He's never going to destroy the earth again by a flood. He puts a rainbow in the sky, and then boom, we read this passage, and we think it's right there. This is, this is years later. I mean, there years pass between verses 17 and 18, or at least between verses 17 and 20. 18 and 19 may be summarizing some of those years. Noah was able, it turns out, to endure, you remember our three enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Constantly doing battle against us. Noah, it seems, was able to survive the world and the devil. The problem is his own flesh. We find Noah in verse 20, 21, passed out drunk in his tent. So drunk that somewhere along the way he took off all his clothes and is laying there naked in his tent. Not stumbling drunk. Not one sip too much. Not, oops, I can't quite get to the tent. Can somebody stabilize me? I'm a little... He's passed out cold in his tent. In fact, we're told later... In verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, he wasn't taking a nap. He was passed out because of his wine. And so you have to understand, this is Noah is beyond drunk, and he's, he's passed out drunk in his tent and completely naked. That's the context. That's the setting. Now, we're not going to take the time. We don't have the time this morning. To justify, okay, Scripture never condemns the consumption of, of wine. It, it just doesn't. And we don't have time to, de- to defend all of that. That's not the problem here. But Scripture does always condemn drunkenness. It always condemns being under the influence of other things, whether it be alcohol or some other controlled substance or anything other than the Spirit, quite honestly. Part of the point is to say if you're you're not being led by the Spirit, you're being led by something else. And whatever that something else is, is sin, you're given to that rather than being given to the Spirit. Here, Noah has yielded to the power and influence of alcohol. Proverbs 20 warns against drinking too much wine. Habakkuk Two actually connects uh, alcohol with sexual misconduct, and, and that certainly plays out. We see that in our own lives, our, our, the news, and our day, our world today. We're not told that Noah is doing anything wrong. Moses, the writer of this passage, never actually comments exactly on what Noah is doing. We know he's drunk, we know he's passed out, and we know he's naked in his tent. Sometimes we wish the Bible were written a little more like the National Enquirer or one of those tabloid papers at the checkout of the grocery store. Sometimes we want juicy details. Sometimes we want more than is written for us. You know, the National Enquirer, it's going to give you everything it can. 
It's going to lay out every bit of juicy gossip it can possibly dig up or even make up and lay it out there for you. Sometimes we come to Scripture and go, I wish I had just a little more information here. I wish I had a little more information about this conversation or about this event. In other words, here's what we can say for certain. Noah is in sin because he's passed out drunk in his tent. Noah lacks self-control. Noah lacks that fruit of the Spirit, self-control. He's given into his wine. Already, you're kind of reminded of, of something we've pointed out a couple of times already. Yeah, Noah maybe delivered people from the flood, but he's not yet delivered anyone from sin. Sin is not eradicated by the flood. The the flood doesn't solve the world's sin problem. It's still in the heart of man. We've made that observation, I think, the last two uh, sermon texts, I believe. Noah has failed to deliver us from sin, though he may have delivered us through the flood. This is the pattern of Scripture, by the way. I mean, this, is, this is normal for the Bible. Just when you and I think, maybe this is the guy. If you start at Genesis 1 and start reading, every time you ask that question, wait, could this be the one? Could this guy be the promised seed of the woman? Every time you start to think, maybe, maybe this is the one. There's some issue of sin that the writer points out. Hey, Noah has delivered us through the flood and there's this rainbow. Maybe Noah's the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3. The very next passage, he's drunk naked in his tent. Maybe David's the one. He's the, the, the deliverer of Israel. Maybe David is going to be this righteous king that sits on the throne of, of Israel forever. Oh, there's Bathsheba and her husband. Maybe Peter is going to be this great one that... Oh, wait. He denied Christ. Maybe Paul... Oh, wait. No. He was killing Christians. He was on his way to to destroy the overwhelming message of Scripture. Over and over and over again is you and I are not looking for just just a mere man. We're not looking for just a mere human being. We need someone who can deliver us not just through this trial of the flood, but can solve the sin problem not out there, but in here, inside myself. Noah is not really the Savior we might think he was going to be. But he's also not the only one guilty of grievous, heinous sin in this passage. Yes, his sin gives opportunity to more. Yes, he offers an opportunity to others. But he never causes anyone else to sin. Ham, we find out, this 
the youngest son. Ham, you get the list. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But Ham is the youngest. Ham, verse 22, discovers his father passed out, drunk, naked in his tent. And he has opportunity to do something about it. Notice that his problem, his sin, is not noticing his dad. He could have, he could have covered his dad up. He could have done any number of things. The problem with Ham comes after he sees his father passed out, naked, drunk in his tent. What is, how does he respond? What does he do in response to that? We're told at the end of verse 22, he went out and told his brothers. He sees his father's shame. He sees his father's guilt. He sees his father's sinful condition and says, hey guys, you got to see this. You're not going to believe what dad's doing. You're not going to believe what's happened to dad. Y'all got to go see this. Dad's passed out drunk in his tent. He went out and told his brothers. In other words, Ham's sin, Ham's problem is that he violates the fifth commandment. He's disrespectful to his father. Now, this is where... You're, you're, you're in a PCA church. Grace Covenant Church is, a, is a, a PCA church. That's our denomination. That means that we hold to certain doctrinal truths. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. The, the summary of the 33 central doctrines of Scripture. The larger catechism, question 124, asks this question. Who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? Here's the answer. By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors. We hate that word, don't we? But all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. In other words, we all have people over us. We all have bosses. We all have teachers. We all have parents. We all have people in authority over us. How do we talk about them? What do we say about them? When we find them in sin, it is, our, is it our joy to expose their sin to the world? When we find them, their shame and guilt, is it our joy to expose that shame and guilt? That's exactly what Ham has done to his father. His father, yes, is, is in shame and is guilty of sin, but it, it, Ham doesn't have to go publicizing it. He doesn't have to go announcing it. He doesn't have to go talking about it. In fact, one old Scottish commentator went so far as to make this claim that Ham doesn't love his father at all. Whoa, 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 that's a little too much. You can't jump out there quite that far. You can't be quite so convinced that Ham doesn't love his father 
Except that Proverbs tells us love covers all offenses. First Peter tells us love covers a multitude of sins. Ham, rather than covering his father's shame and guilt, goes out and announces it to the world. Is Noah disgraced? Absolutely. Is he guilty of sin? Absolutely. Has he brought shame on himself and, his, and for that matter, his family? Absolutely. Does Ham need to announce it and publicize it? Not at all. Ham's sin is violating the fifth commandment, exposing his father's shame and guilt. Because that's the contrast between verse 22 and 23. It's the contrast between Ham's actions and the actions of Shem and Japheth. Notice, here's one of those times where the... the the Bible writer does slow down and does kind of take care to make certain things clear to us so that we might see and hear and, and understand. This time, Moses actually repeats himself a couple of times and says the same thing again. See what I did there? Um, to make clear to us that we know what he's saying. That we understand the point he's trying to make. You see in verse 23, Shem and Japheth took a garment. It may actually be Noah's garment. It may be his own robe. And they put it over their shoulders and walk backward into the tent and cover their father up. And by the way, just to make clear, Moses says, they never saw his nakedness. They didn't look at their father. They went in to cover his shame and his guilt. They went, went in to hide his, his sinfulness, to hide, to cover his nakedness. You know, over and over again throughout Scripture, nakedness is associated with, with guilt, with sin. That, that's, that's why we have clothes, because we, don't, we shouldn't be, aren't supposed to be exposed to the world like that. Shem and Japheth go in and cover their father's sin and guilt. I, I, hope, I hope there's a verse reverberating in your brain right now. I hope there's something in your head going, wait a minute, I've heard this before. Hang on, this is familiar to me. This, this resonates with me. Where have we done this before? Because we have. We've done that in Genesis, by the way. Because at the very end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have introduced sin into the world. They've become exposed. They know their nakedness and so they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves up. They try to do what they can to hide their own sin and guilt and shame. And they hid from God because we were ashamed because we were naked and do you remember what happened at the end of Genesis 3? God killed an animal and made clothes for Adam and Eve to hide, to cover their nakedness, their shame, and their guilt. Shem and Japheth actually model what God has already done at least once. Shem and Japheth are reflecting their own God's behavior. Rather than 
exposing their father's guilt and shame, they instead went in to cover it up, to hide it. Notice though that Noah wakes up, verse 24, and Noah learns what happens. And again, there's another one of those situations where we aren't told how he found out. We don't know if his brothers ratted him out. We, we don't have any way of knowing. Noah discovers what Ham has done and pronounces curses on Canaan, on Ham's youngest son, Canaan. Now, a couple of things you need to see about what Noah says here. First of all, we actually are introduced to Noah somewhere in his 600th year of life. We know that at the beginning of Genesis 7, he goes into the ark at 600 years old. He's been building the ark for decades. So somewhere in his 500s, we meet Noah. And at the end of this chapter, he dies at 950 years. So for roughly 350 to 400 years, we have... Uh, we have of Noah's life. This is the only thing he ever says. He, Genesis 6, he never spoke. Genesis 7, he never spoke. Genesis 8, he never spoke. Now we're told things that he did, but this is the only time that Noah speaks. And it's to pronounce curses on Ham's youngest son, Canaan, and blessings on actually Shem and Japheth, but their God more even than them. It also tells us something else about, about Scripture. Um, the details we have, we have because we're supposed to have them. Think of all the time you and I spend wondering why we don't know such and such about the Bible. Why we aren't given such and such information. I mean, why don't we know for certain this or that? We should probably spend more time trying to figure out what we do know than what we don't. Because if we aren't told, we aren't told and aren't supposed to know. And here, Moses, there are details we're given and details withheld. And all that teaches us is that what we're supposed to have, we're supposed is what God wants us to have. That's exactly what we are supposed to know and to have. These truths, these events, these activities, these conversations, all of these things are for our good that we might know Christ and be conformed to His image. You know, it's funny. We are quick to claim God's covenant promises, His covenant blessings on our children. We are perhaps just as quick to dismiss His covenant curses on our children. Ham acts in disobedience without faith, acts in ways contrary to the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God 
and his covenant curses land not even on Ham, but on his children. I, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, God says. Well, here it is being played out. Noah's youngest son has exposed his guilt and shame, and therefore his youngest son's youngest son bears the covenant curse for that disobedience. And now we know through the rest of Scripture that the Canaanites model perfectly what they have seen in their father Canaan and in his father Ham. But they, they bear the, the covenant curses, the, the promise of, of the curse for disobedience, for lack of faith, for rebellion. This, by the way, should have been encouragement to Moses' original audience, right? Moses is writing to the Israelites somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. The land of... Wait a minute. That's, that's the land of Canaan. That's where the Canaanites are. We're going to go in and defeat and destroy the Canaanites. You're to go in and utterly wipe them out. This passage should have been encouragement to the Israelites in that moment. Wait a minute. We have God's promise that these people are going to be our servants. What are we worried about? And yet, they were afraid. Shem and Japheth, however, are already in a covenant relationship with God. Notice verse 26. You have that word. We've, we've made this observation before. If your English Bible gives you the word Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, then it's, that's the English Bible's way of saying it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, God's covenant-making, covenant-keeping name. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. Shem's already in a covenant relationship with God. He's only acting out of the grace he's already been given. He's acting out of the faith that he has by God's grace in the one true God of the Bible, the God of Israel. Shem and Japheth act out of love for God. Ham acts out of disobedience disrespect both for his father and for his father's God. And for that, he brings curses on his family for generations to come. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. First is a warning of sorts. You know, we have this notion that being a teenager is difficult. Or being a 20-something-year-old is difficult. And, and one day, I'll be 60. And when I'm 60, man, the trials of life just get so much easier. I don't have to deal with all the same kinds of peer pressure. And things are just going to get better. And I can't wait till I'm 60. Or we might even turn it around the other way. I, I've been walking with Christ for 60 years of my life. I, I, I'm 65 years old. I don't remember a day of my life when I didn't know Christ as my Savior. And 
we tend to relax sometimes. And, and there's a sense in which this passage, passage is given to us as a warning. Noah has walked with God for 600 years and has actually delivered all mankind through this flood. And it's, it's once the trial is over and he is at peace when he yields to the flesh. This passage serves as a warning. Sin and temptation are not only for young people. Sin and temptation don't go away. Kids, if you're thinking to yourself, boy, I can't wait till I'm old enough that I don't have to deal with sin anymore. I don't have to deal with temptation anymore. That happens after we die. This passage serves as a warning to us as we get older. Or for those of you who are older, and I'll let you decide what that word means. It's a warning to run to the grace of Christ. That only there can we withstand sin and temptation. The, the battle, the onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil. A second application, and, and we've already sort of pointed this out. Uh, I'll make it very uh, quickly. Um, we read the Bible looking for a perfect deliverer. We're reading the Bible looking for that promised seed of the woman. And over and over and over again, we bump into people who we think this might be the one, and then suddenly there's grievous sin in his life. That's clearly not the one. We finish Genesis 9, and we're still waiting for that promised seed of the woman, the promised deliverer. You can strike Noah off of that list, it's not Noah. We're still waiting for Christ. We're still waiting for that perfect, sinless Redeemer of God's people. There's a, a third application uh, for us. You know, some of you might be thinking to yourself, all right, I, I hate to admit this, but what Noah's done in Genesis 9, I've done much worse than that. Some of you have that thought in your head. If you only knew. I mean, what Noah has done here in Genesis 9, that is nothing compared to some of the stuff I've done. You want to see the list? I mean, that's what hope do I have? If, if this is the problem, or for that matter, Ham disobeys his dad, violates the fifth commandment, what possible hope could I have? Because that is nothing compared to the stuff that I've Done. Let me show you something real quick. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And you notice the very next verse is Abraham. Keep going. Turn to Second Peter chapter 2. 
2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is writing to encourage people enduring trials that if God can deliver these people through trials, then surely He can deliver us. Chapter 2, verse 5. If He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he, the next verse is Sodom and Gomorrah. What do you notice about the verses we just read? They make no mention of our passage in Genesis 9. You and I need to be encouraged by that. We read a few minutes ago as, as our assurance of pardon, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We could just as easily have used God takes our sins and throws them behind His back never to look at them again. The New Testament never mentions Noah's failure in Genesis 9. That's your hope. That's your comfort. That in Christ, that if you run to Christ, if your hope is in Christ and in Him alone, your sins are thrown behind His back and He doesn't look at them again. The New Testament never mentions Genesis 9. You too can have a similar epitaph. You too can have the, the exact same thing written about you. Noah's a, a herald of righteousness in Hebrews 11. He's endured the flood and delivered people in 2 Peter 2. He's not the drunkard, naked guy in his tent. Because in Christ, that sin is forgiven. The Son of God has paid for that sin and remembers it no more. Let me make one more application from this passage. You know, you and I are direct beneficiaries of verse 27. That is, by the way, why we read Galatians 3 as our New Testament reading a few minutes ago. That spoke of Gentiles also being recipients of the gospel in Christ. That Christ came not just for the Jews, but for the Jews and for the Gentiles. Because... In Christ, we, the descendants of Japheth, are able to dwell in the tents of Shem. That promise is spiritually fulfilled in Christ. That you and I, as believers in Christ, trusting in Christ for our salvation, are recipients of that promise. That we dwell in the tents of Shem. You and I, as we trust in Christ, actually see the fulfillment, live the fulfillment of the promise of verse 27. There's a sense in which, even before Abraham, there's hope of the gospel going out not just to the Jews, but even to the Gentiles. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the promise 
of deliverance in Christ. Uh, We thank you that Noah was not the one. He was not the promised Redeemer. He was not the promised Messiah. That that we finish Genesis 9 and are still looking for a sinless Savior. Uh, One who uh, can deliver us not just from judgment for sin, not just from punishment, but can actually be at work rooting out sin in us. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your faithfulness to endure the cross, sinless though You were, the cross that we deserve for our sin, for our violation of God's law. And we pray that You would strengthen us, encourage us, equip us to live for You, to live by faith, in a world that wants to oppose you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.